LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. And so I was looking at the outcome of, of people in history whose fruit I wanted to see God do again. And then I looked at their lifestyle. And I was like, let me go imitate that. And all the people who saw the fruit I wanted, people of prayer. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Vinoy, here with my co-host, Mike Kelsey. How's it going, Mike? Going well, man. Uh, I'm super excited for uh, today. We're excited to talk with John Tyson, who serves as the lead pastor of Church of the City in New York. And uh, man, I, like many of you, I'm sure, have followed his ministry, read books, listened to sermons, uh, but really excited about what God is doing uh, through him. He's the author of several books, including his latest one, Beautiful Resistance. John, what's up, man? Glad to have you on. Guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's a joy to be here. Well, John, we know you're up in New York, and I know for the past year, everything has changed for everyone, I but I know for New York, it has been um, kind of at the heart a lot of the pandemic at the early on, and you guys are still trying to wrestle with how to minister in the midst of all this. So just before we even jump into the questions here, can you just kind of fill us in on what ministry has looked like for the past year and even what, what life has looked like for you? Well, in some sense, I mean, ministries look like it has for everybody, which is like a lot of Zoom calls and a lot of tears. Um, in other ways, I think it's it might have been compounded a little bit because of the location. Um, definitely have friends who, you know, have PTSD when they hear a, an ambulance. The ambulance was just going 24-7. And wow. uh, it was it was... It was heavy, man. I mean, I think it'll probably take a couple of years to unpack the full implications of it. Christians tend to have sort of that heroic missional response. But then when all the adrenaline wears off, you know, do we have enough left in the tank to lead and rebuild? So that's what I'm spending a lot of time working on right now is like, you know, tending to the heart, making sure I'm I'm got a I'm leading from a, a place of health the next couple of years. So it was crazy, man. Um it depends on which part of New York you were in, really dependent on how you experienced it, you know. So if you were an essential worker, um, this was probably the defining event of your life. No matter what else happens, this would be top three. Um, if you had the money to get out, if you were pretty wealthy, this was like, you know, some time off, a, a slower schedule and more time with family. So it's, it's, it was a broad spectrum of, of what it was like for people, but... It, it, it exposed a lot of weaknesses in the church and it highlighted a lot of the church's strengths. So it was like the best of times, the worst of times, the church in all of her glory and the church in her horror and squalor. You know, it was all the things. Hmm. What, now are you get, oh, sorry, going, Mike? No, you got Mike. All right, mate. We just did the Christian thing. You go. No, you go. <laughs> there you I go. was going to ask you, John, like you said, expose some of the weaknesses of the church and some of the strengths. What are some of the strengths? that you feel like this season exposed in the church? Because we hear a lot of the bad news mm. about the church, but that's intriguing and encouraging for you to say there were some strengths that got exposed too. Yeah, uh, uh, social networking, like I, mean, I don't mean social media. I mean, Christians have a built-in complex uh, web of love that exists across the city. The government doesn't have that. Individuals don't have that. So it's for the broad body of Christ to say, let's serve one another and let's help each other in profound ways. Like there's an underlying web of love 
that the city does not normally pay attention to that have thrived in moments of crisis like this. Practical serving, caring for the poor, handing out food. Like a lot of the times the people doing the good work were followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Christians tend to thrive in crisis. We put aside theological divisions. We put aside secondary doctrines and we just try and do the Jesus stuff. And I think this was a time when a lot of that actually happened. It was pretty similar, different dynamics, but similar to what happened during Hurricane Sandy. I remember being down at uh, the largest sort of food depot in Manhattan serving during Hurricane Sandy, and one of the city workers said, who are you people and where do you come from? And I was like, I'd like to introduce you to the body of Christ in New York City. Mm. And it was like a church reunion, man. It was people from every church just rolling in with volunteers to, to love and serve. And so that definitely happened again, and that was one of the most compelling things. Love that. Well, John, let's, let's move. I know we're talking about where you are now in New York, but let's go back. And if you could just walk us through a quick overview of the different leadership roles that you've been in over the years. And I know that, you know, your journey started in Australia now you're in New York and just take us through some of the the journey of that. Well, what I, what I love about uh, your podcast, the idea of like getting the backstory, really seeing what's, what's made people in that. So often we're a society obsessed with technique. So we imi- try and imitate success rather than the process and the lessons that have actually formed the person. So I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, so if you were to ask me what jobs I've had, man, I've had every job under the sun. I mean, it's been crazy that stuff I've done would boggle your brain. And, um, some of it, I don't even know if it was legal. I'm serious. Like I don't even talk about it cause it's, it's, it's genuinely questionable. Um, but in terms of leadership, um, I've done, I've led a, I've been an assistant leader of a community group. I've been a community group leader. I've been a, a small groups coach. I've been a pastor of youth discipleship. I've been a middle school pastor. I've been a high school youth pastor, a college age youth pastor, next gen. Um, and I've been the senior pastor, uh, founding church uh, planter and pastor of uh, a few churches in New York City. So, you know, everything from like straight up, entry into leadership 101 all the way through being the senior leader of a, of a mega church. So I've done everything in between. Yeah. I was like, man, did they just give you jobs just based on your age? Like <laughs> you've had every job in the church. Well, yeah, I've done some, I've done some kids work. I was a worship leader too. I forgot about that. So I was a worship, <laughs> worship and youth pastor at in Texas. That was fun. John will put his resume up against anyone's. He's like, I got that covered. (laughs) Well, you know, you're talking about, you've, you've been in so many different seats. Um, what did it look like for you to, to step in? You you talked about being the the founding pastor of the church. And is that the same church that you're at today? Uh, no, that's a different church. So I've, I've planted a couple of churches. Um, but I've been the founding pastor of those, of both of those ones. So So what did that what did that look like for you when you were, you know, you're in those different leadership roles and you're trying to figure out, okay, what is God's unique calling? You know, for me, is it to, is it to plant? Is it to remain where I'm at? How did you wrestle through? I mean, there's, there's step after step that you're following in obedience of saying, Lord, you know, use me here, use me here. How did you determine, you know, it is time to go plant a church. It is time to step into maybe the lead role rather than the role that I'm in currently. Well, you know, so this is now 2004, okay? So church planting wasn't as popular. There was very few books written on it back then. Um, 
I heard about, you know, starting a church at an, uh, can, like where, where it clarified in my heart, okay, I should consider doing this at a Catalyst conference, the first Catalyst conference. I heard Andy Stanley give a throwaway conference. He said, when we planted North Point, and it consciously hit me for the first time in my life, what do you mean you planted it? Like who gave you permission? Was it like the denomination? Was it the Pope? Was it another pastor? And it just made me go like, whose permission do I need to lead something like that? Hmm. And as it turns out, one of the downsides and upsides of Protestantism, the answer is basically nobody, you know, 50,000 popes all doing their own thing. So, I mean, I wanted to make sure I was ready, but I, I basically let out when I, when the fire burned so strongly, I couldn't not do it. I had to do it. I had to risk everything. And um, I was just, I felt like I was going crazy. And so I didn't know if I was ready, but I was, I was just like, I can't keep doing what I'm doing. So I did a 40 day fast. It was one of those, those big tests. And on the last day I came home and there was a, a big check in the mail and someone said, pay off your debts and do whatever's next in your heart. And I was like, that was it, man, I'm ready to go. So that was my confirmation. And then we sold our house and did the book of Acts, paid off everybody's debts, like in the book of Acts, and then just got going, man. And we said, we're going to try and we know we'll make mistakes, but I think we'll start living in the regret of not doing it more than the regret of failure. So we just, we just sort of launched out. So I was 28 at that point. And that felt about right. I had, I had a, a good amount of experience. I'd worked on small staffs, medium-sized staffs, large staffs. I felt uh, I was super hungry for leadership development, man. I was like literally mainlining John Maxwell at that point. It was like, if they were, if anything you could get on leadership, I was just like reading it, reading it and trying to apply it. And, um, and at some point I was like, I'm out of book learning. I need new dimensions of experience to actually put this stuff into practice. So, Wow, man. And, and maybe some, some of what you just shared is a part of your answer to this, but, you know, we have different moments in our lives that set trajectory. And uh, so I'm sure you have some of those. Can you tell us about a pivotal moment that you look back on uh, that changed your leadership in your life? I know for me, if I got a check in the mail that said pay off your debt, that would be a pivotal moment. <laughs> uh, and so, man, if it was that, but but just as you look back, w- was there a pivotal moment that you would say in some pretty significant ways that have lasting effects even today, this changed my leadership in my life? Yes, yeah, so I've got some I've got some high moments. I've got some moments of pain and failure where I've hurt people that I'm like, I never want to never want to do that again. Mm-hmm. But probably the biggest one that sort of framed the whole thing. When I was 14, I got a job in a, in a butcher shop, in a meat factory in Australia. And, um, you know, I, I, I had pretty high people skills in my teenage years, you know, pretty witty, pretty, pretty quick. And um, I remember just thinking, say what adults want. So I got the job out of about 100 kids lined up around the block because he said, why do you want the job? And I said, I'm sick of taking money from my parents. So I want to learn responsibility on my own. And I got hired and that, that wasn't true. I wanted money to go surfing. You know what I'm saying? But I was like, I bet that's what he wants to hear. Um, I wasn't a Christian back then. I was just, but pretty early in my boss pulled me aside and I thought I was in trouble. And he pulled me in and he said, John, has anyone ever told you that you're a leader? And I was like, no. And he said, you're a leader, man. You've got leadership on you and I want to develop you into a leader. I think you can go a long way in this industry. It was one of those things where I was like, 
I had never consciously viewed myself as a leader. Funny, sarcastic, witty, cocky. Yes. Leader. No. And, um, and then, so he basically said to me, why don't you drop out of high school? do an apprenticeship with me and I'll teach you how to retire by the time you're 30. And he was the first person that gave me a vision of, of life. So I, I dropped out of high school when I was 16. I didn't drop out because I was failing. I dropped out because my boss laid out a vision of leadership development. And that, so that basically someone literally called it out that they saw something in me. And um, I was like, gosh, I've tried to call out people's gifts Ever since that moment, I've tried it. Whenever I see something in somebody, I say, I just want you to know I see this in you because it shaped me. It woke up a dimension of my life that could have laid dormant for 10 years or never have been activated, you know? Mm-hmm. That was a big one, man. 14-year-old kid. Wait, so were, you, were your family like you're dropping out of school to work at a butcher shop? Like how did that conversation go? <laughs> You know, I just brought this. My parents are wonderful. Uh, my dad just had a stroke last week, man. I mean, I'm like, I want to be super honoring of them. I was like, I remember saying to them, like, why didn't you talk me out of that? Why didn't like, you know, why didn't we have harder conversations about me just dropping out of high school? But I think they were like, I, I do remember my mum saying, John, you've got so much more in you than just being a butcher. Do you remember that one statement from my mum? But look, man, I was good at it. I was making money. I bought a house when I was 19, lived on my own, was you know financially independent. I mean, I was like my boss was an amazing businessman, like a genuinely remarkable man. So, you know, I think my parents were sort of like saw the environment I was in, saw I had an aptitude for it. Like I was winning. I mean, these are, these are like meaningless accomplishments to boast in. But I was like, I was winning like... <laughs> I'm trying to think of the American equivalent. It would be like 4A Butcher of the Year or something like that. You know what I mean? Like I, I, <laughs> I, was, good, I, was, I was good at it. I had a knack for it. And um, so, and they saw that my boss was like, he was delivering on the goods, man. I was, I was getting more and more responsibility. Like people talk about being apprentices of Jesus. I did an actual apprenticeship. So I know what it's like to do a four-year, multi-year developmental skill acquisition process. And um, I'm really grateful for those years. It was a very hard, I became a Christian in the middle of those years. So I, you you know, you can imagine a butcher shop is not a godly environment. And um, so I went from like loving the godlessness to to being grieved in my spirit by it. And then I just got basically the crap beaten out of me by my fellow employees for being a person of faith. So I learned a lot, man. That was a school of formation, but my parents, you know, they're like, okay, John's going to do his thing. Just be good at it, I guess, is sort of their vision, you know. I want to go back. You you mentioned, you know, 14, somebody called out, hey, you're a leader. You have these attributes. And I love what you said. You're like, I was just reading anything and everything on leadership I could get my hands on. And at 28, felt like the Lord was calling you to step in. You read enough books. You're like, it's time to actually put this into practice. And I feel like there's some listening who are sitting there. They're like, John, I've been reading all the books. I, I feel like I've been waiting. What, and you know, maybe, maybe they're still called to wait for years to come, but what did you learn from, there's a difference between reading about leadership and then actually leading. What were some of the biggest takeaways from going from theory to practice when it come, when it came to leading people and developing them? Oh yeah. I mean, humility. Hmm. I was so humbled, mate. <laughs> 
so easy on a page, so hard in real life. Um, a lot more grace towards other leaders I'd criticized. You know, like, why do you do this? It's so clear. John Maxwell says, <laughs> and you're like, well, you know, that book's a lot easier than the complexity of the situation. And I look along the way, I was very, I, I, I had some very gracious mentors who, when I made mistakes, they would just point these things out to me that say, Hey man, look, can I just give you some feedback here? And I remember once I hired someone from another church and uh, this, this pastor came to New York city, sat down with me, had a meal with me and he said, John, you're a young leader and I think you're going to do well in leadership. And so because I think you've got a future, I'm going to say something to you. I wouldn't say to someone I didn't believe in. And he basically said, this is an interpretation. There's a way to play the game and you're not playing it right. And he just mm. talked to me. He's like, hey, look, you know, the kingdom of God is a very small ecosystem. If you poach staff and you don't do it properly, you're going to develop a reputation. You're going to damage kingdom relationships. And there's a way to do this, to play the game right. That's about a culture of honor. And I just want to tell you, he said, like, sort of forgive me. Like, I, I could be your father's age and view this as a fatherly exhortation. I'm just going to tell you how to play the game. And so I finished that meal and I was like, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate and respect that. And so I've had people along the way who have been very gracious in my leadership failure to speak into those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's, it's harder. It produced a lot more humility. I became a lot less critical of other leaders because I, I know what they're challenging, what they're experiencing, how they're challenging. And I've been very grateful to have mentors who like disproportionately spoken into me and corrected me and helped me. Hmm. Well, you, you mentioned failures and you mentioned, you know, them kind of calling those out and you being able to learn from them. What would you say was your biggest mistake as a leader getting started? And how did that help you set yourself up for success down the road? The biggest mistake was actually about motives and not practices. I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty generous in leadership. I think a lot of leaders are doing the best they can in increasingly complex situations. And none of us have the training for the drama we're dealing with. So I'm pretty gracious on leadership mistakes, um, but motives, motives are everything. So I, I probably had some, some wounds, leader wounds, some, you know, some father wounds sorts of stuff. And I, I had my motives weren't in the right place. And so I was, you know, making that terrible mistake of rejoicing that the demons are coming out of people. And Jesus says, do not rejoice in that. So I was rejoicing in the wrong things. I remember once, you know, so I had a pretty good ministry run as a youth leader, you know, led very, very large ministries that grew very quickly. So a lot of hype, a lot of like, man, a lot of technique and a lot of ego. I remember several years later, um, one of our best leaders, just like a, a total, you know, sort of campus phenom, pulled me aside and sat me down and he just said, Hey man, I just want you to know the after effect of being in your ministry was I felt really, really used. I felt like you used mm. my gifts to build your platform. And I just remember like, honestly, like wanting to vomit. It was like such a hard conversation. And I can tell he did it. He wasn't doing it to like, get me back. He was like, Hey man, I just felt like I had to share this with you. And that sort of shook me at a pretty staggering level and put me on like a, a multi-year motive examination and sort of pathway to repentance for leadership. So that was like, wow, well, I've used people instead of loving them. And that's like, you know, in, in Ezekiel, uh, when um, Yahweh's rebuking the shepherds of Israel, I was like, oh gosh, this is what the person feels. Maybe how this, this is how God feels. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was hard to hear. Very hard to hear. 
ambition, man, ungodly ambition. It's it's demonic. You know, in, in James R 3, it says, wherever you have selfish ambition, it unleashes every evil practice. That's the fruit of it. It's demonic. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people who get hurt in churches under toxic or bad leadership, it's not just human dynamics. It's spiritual abuse. It's, it's spiritual warfare. It's demonic. It's, it's true. It's because selfish ambition unleashes hell in the church. Yeah. Well, hey, before we get to our next question, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. No matter how many people you have on staff at your church, there's only so much you can accomplish in a day, right? Your church exists to serve your community. So the mission of your church and its staff is to reach as many people as you can. That's why productivity is essential for churches, as most of your church's success lies in its ability to lean into and leverage resources for optimum performance. And thankfully, our friends at Belay know this well. Belay is an innovative staffing solution with over 10 years of experience serving churches, and they have successfully matched thousands of organizations with part-time virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists. That's why they're offering our listeners a free download of their resource, Church Leaders, Essential Strategies to Unleash Productivity. Let Belay help your church live its mission in your community by helping you juggle less and accomplish more. Just go to Belay, that's B-E-L-A-Y, solutions.com slash Lifeway for your free download. John, I know one of the reasons why I've pay so much attention to your ministry is uh, for me as Chandler, I don't think I can call myself a young leader anymore, but I'm on the podcast though. So uh, (laughs) young ish, uh, graduating young leader is um, I find myself lately wanting to listen to people that make me want to pray more because it's just, it's very difficult, right? With everything going on to prioritize that, to devote yourself to prayer, so if I listen to a preacher, if I a read a writer, that just in reading their stuff, it it just stokes that flame in me. Uh, I find myself drawn to it, and you're one of those guys. So for you, you've been banging that drum now uh, as a pastor, as a leader. Just the need to devote ourselves to prayer, to depend on the Lord, to throw all of our weight on uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. How, what led you to become so devoted to prayer and, uh, and what was that process like for you? Um, so, well, I'm really honored that you say that. I mean, it's one of the great themes of my life. It's just a biblical thing. I mean, Colossians 4 says, devote yourself to prayer. That's it straight up. Devote yourself to prayer. So, you know, we devote ourselves to so many things. But who do you know that's like, tell me about their life, man. They are devoted to prayer. That's just, it's a biblical exhortation. So I'm trying to be faithful to what the Bible teaches. Um, you know, I was very, very grateful. I became a Christian in a Pentecostal youth revival in Australia. It's a church that's now called Planet Shakers. But back in the day, it was called Paradise Assemblies of God. And the youth group was called Solid Rock. And it was a very remarkable move of God. I mean, the amount of kids who've gone into full-time ministry out of that youth group is mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. And there's people all over the world who were touched by that ministry. And we just had a couple of amazing youth leaders, a guy named Russell Evans, who just had a supernatural gift of faith, and then a guy named Paul Geerling. And um, they just, just talked about the power of prayer, and they just saw God answer prayer. They made prayer exciting. 
exciting. And so, you know, I, I read a couple, I read uh, Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill and I was like all shaken up in a revival environment to see God. So I just started getting up at 4 a.m. and doing the things I'd read about, like these men of God from history got up at 4 a.m. and they prayed for a couple of hours before work and I was like, you know, that's the fruit I want to see in my life. In the book of Hebrews, it says, I remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. And so I was looking at the outcome of, of people in history whose fruit I wanted to see God do again. And then I looked at their lifestyle and I was like, let me go imitate that. And all the people who saw the fruit I wanted, people of prayer. So I just started getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, setting my alarm and just playing those early Hillsong hits. And um, <laughs> we'd go into my city and um, just walk around and just pray for revival, like get on my knees and take communion with a little communion kit. And it was just a part of the, the culture. And so my youth leaders like modeled prayer and they encouraged that. They didn't say that's weird. They were like never lose that heart. So I was really birthed in the environment that I became a Christian in. And then honestly, the rest of my life, I have just sought to faithfully steward that very rare culture of revival that brought me to Christ. Mm -hmm. So that's those, those were the early years. And there's not a day that doesn't go by that I'm not just like aching for more time to pray, you know? Mm, yeah. And I think that's the true ministry. I mean, look, the, the complexity of problems, I was just, you know, I have an amazing uh, coach and mentor. I was on the phone with this morning and we we're talking about um, multi-ethnic ministry and racism. And it was just, we're talking about how it's like defined as like the grand or a wicked problem, which means it's multidimensional. It's, it's staggeringly complex and it's, and it's, you feel it at multiple levels. So you can't fix it. You can't solve this. It's just like, you know, one of those reminders is like, well, then we get a, like, if we, we've got to use the agency we have, Mm. but we often neglect in our attempt to do that, the power that we have. Mm-hmm. And so I was just reminded of the importance of praying to God about this. All evil that is manifest in our world has its roots in an invisible evil behind the scenes. And so often we rarely address the invisible evil. And so we rely again on human technique, human, human systems to solve satanic problems. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't have like the energy, the skill or the wisdom to deal with the complexity on a human level, but I do have divine power in God to demolish strongholds. And I was like, you know, for every hundred people working on that stuff, they tend to work on it to the neglect of, of spiritual warfare and seeking God in prayer. So I'm just trying to like make that the fulcrum that my ministry is built on. Mm-hmm. One other thing I would say, um, I've been, you know, in sort of studying revival and those sorts of things, I've always been, amazed by the connection of prayer and leadership, prayer and the word. And anytime you see somebody God using, I guarantee there is an atmosphere commitment to an environment of prayer and intercession around their life. Mm. And it's like, you want leadership influence? You got to get in the secret place. And uh, Jesus says, what, what's done in secret will be rewarded in public. But if you try and get the reward in public, you'll have no power in the secret place. Yeah. And you know what will happen? The stuff that's happening in public now, you know, yeah I love how you were like yeah I just read all those biographies and so I just started waking up at 4 (laughs) a.m it's like man props to you that's awesome um but I love I love the heart that you shared there and I even just convicted in my own life is that we can and we've heard this from other podcast guests but it's like man we can focus so much on leadership that we just miss 
the building up of ourselves in Christ likeness oh. and, and becoming more like Jesus. And I just want to kind of even dive in even more because, you know, we can ask the question of John, how do you become a better leader? How do you do this better? But man, how do, how do we cultivate a prayer life? So maybe, you know, even for me, as I'm asking this and hopefully for those listening, they're sitting there and going, I love the, I love the heart behind that. I, I just don't know how to cultivate that prayer life in my, in my own life. So could you kind of just practically break down how, how can someone create a life of prayer and a dependence upon God and that spiritual discipline? Well, the, the first thing I want to say is this. I mean, you pray because you love. That's it. You pray because you love. You love God. You want to be with him. You want to know him. You want to understand his heart. You want to encounter his goodness and his power. So it's, it's, you've got to have a vision for love. Uh, if you don't love God, if you're not compelled by the person of Jesus, if you're not intrigued by all of the gifts, ministry, power of the Holy Spirit and, who, and what he does, if you're not in awe of the Father running down the road, you know, forget all of that, you know, it will just become a discipline. Now, I love some discipline, but it's, bu- it's built into light. It's not built into discipline. It's got to be fueled by love. Hmm. Um, the question then is like, how do you cultivate love? And to me, I like I break my day into three basic segments. I've, I've talked about a little a, this about this a little bit lately. I spend the morning for just enjoying God, intimacy with Jesus. So like you know, so I get up and um, I read the scriptures, I read a devotional book, and I just meditate slowly through it. And I'm just like I'm enjoying God's presence. I consciously do things like this. Do you know how good it feels? to know that you're going to live forever and rule and reign as a king and a priest in a new heaven and a new earth. Do you know how good it feels to know that that's your future and it's guaranteed by Jesus? Like I spent a little bit of time feeling that. I'm going somewhere good. And then I spend time enjoying who God is. Like thank you that you resolved the deepest longings of my heart. Thank you for what you set me free from. Thank you for the wonder of a calling. Thank you that you opened a door for me to come to America. Thank you that I get to live in New York. I, this is this is your purpose, your plan. I try and enjoy it, to cultivate love and wonder. Then during the day, I try and have uh, sort of like an interactive conversational stuff, like where's the Father moving? What are you doing, God? What in this in every meeting I'm in? Who's the person? What are they dealing with? Who's the audience? And then at night, I try and give time every night to intercession. And that's like the prayer list. That's where I'm like contending, believing for great things. So I basically have like three prayer movements every day. One of intimacy, one of interaction, one of intercession. And and I got to be honest with you guys, I'm living in the book of Acts right now. The stuff I'm seeing, mate, would blow your mind. I mean, some of it I can't even talk about. But I just say prayer, prayer, God answers prayer. God is a God of miracles. And um, if we, we have to make up theological excuses to explain away all of the promises of the Bible. It's extraordinary what the Bible offers us. And so I've just spent my time like trying to get the word of God in me and believe that and pray that. So, yeah, that's so, yeah, it's got to be rooted in love. And then you've got to sort of have rhythms of prayer that increase your capacity and sustain those sorts of things. Mm. So I feel it, man. I go two days without spending time with God. And my wife's like, where's my husband? Bring John back. Bring the godly man I married back. This guy sucks. <laughs> I feel it quick. Well, man, and I think uh, I know for me, one analogy is is just physically for so much of my life, man, I wasn't drinking a lot of water. I wasn't eating super healthy. But 
unhealth felt very normal to me mm. to the point where I didn't even know, I didn't realize it was unhealthy. It was just normal. Um, mm. And I think there's a lot of young leaders. I know I was when I first started in leadership where spiritual unhealth is normal. Um, and, uh, and so I hope, I hope as, as, as folks are listening to you, man, that there's something that awakens in their heart to, to love Jesus more, to go after him more. Uh, cause we don't know what we're missing, man. We're not mm. abiding in the father's love. Uh, we're, ne- so, we're true. so much on the table, man. So, I, so love, true. I love that, man. Um, you mentioned, man, this coach that you're meeting with and, and today you guys were talking about race and all kind of stuff and just the complexity in our culture right now. Uh, leaders right now are leading in one of the most complex times in recent history, just in 2020 <laughs> and into 2021, much less just in this generational moment. Uh, what, man, I, one of the things that, that I've seen in you and your church and heard you talk about is trying to balance, there's this tension between connecting with culture or wanting to connect with culture, but then like not wanting to offend culture. So trying to walk that line, you're in the heart of it, bro. You're in New York City and you are trying to engage and connect with culture and at the same time stand firm on orthodox biblical teaching, which at several different points is, I would imagine, very offensive anywhere, but definitely in New York City. So, uh, man, how have you navigated that in a place like New York City? Any advice you give young leaders for how to navigate that tension? Well, yeah, it is It is very, very complex, man. I think that the things that people are dealing with today, they're just getting stacked issue upon issue. And a lot of folks feel like you've got to have a degree in sociology. You've got to have a degree in community development. You've got to have a, a degree in apologetics. And that's before you take your first coffee as a pastor. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's like the, the, the stakes are high and uh, people are like, they're putting so much pressure on leaders. Like if you don't answer this right now, I'm walking away from my faith. And I'm like, gosh, it's, it's really, really heavy. So many leadership abuses, so much distrust. <sighs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I just want to acknowledge these are hard times and I've got a lot of respect for younger leaders coming up, trying to sort of like walk the biblical line. Um, I think we, so the, one of the biggest factors is we've got to get our eyes on Jesus. Jesus has to be our leadership model. And, and, and by that, I mean, you got to read the gospels all the time. You have to understand how Jesus was completely free of the fear of man. Uh, he was completely secure in his identity. He had total clarity on his mission. He said, I only speak what I hear the father saying. I only do what I see the father saying. I only disciple the people the father gives me. Like his awareness of his call and his task was extraordinary. And so it says in in the book of Hebrews, man, let us fix our eyes on Jesus so we don't grow weary and lose heart. And I think that's like one of the biggest things is to get our eyes on Jesus. What I call two things, the upward call and faithfulness metrics. You know, like I can't get my validation from New York City because New York ultimately will hate me. And I only know that because Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And it's true. So the question is like, are they hating me because I'm a jerk and misrepresenting the gospel or are they hating me because I'm like Christ and being conformed to his image? There's a big difference between those things. So yeah, it's get your eyes on Jesus, be freed from the the need for the city's affirmation. I got a chapter of that in my book on idolatry, how in the early days it was very, very hard for me uh, not to let the city dictate and shape things in me. And I think, then I think the other thing is like, 
you've got to hold things with conviction and compassion. So, you know, like look at Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He goes up on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And you think he's going to lower all of the standards to make it easier for beat down people who are oppressed by religion. And he doesn't. He says mm. your righteousness has to be surpassed the Pharisees. If you cut your hand off, you know, if you look at a woman, gouge your, gouge, you've committed adultery, gouge your eyes out. And then you would expect someone who is like upping the ante like that to step off the Sermon on the Mount and just be like the Taliban. And yet he immediately leaves the Sermon on the Mount and then starts welcoming the outcasts, eating with sinners, eating and, and rebuking Pharisees for their condemnation of disreputable women. You go like, how can he do these things? It's like, that's the genius of Jesus, man. Only he holds those two things together. And I think that's what I'm trying to model in New York. I'm trying to have tremendous compassion, but I do not want to compromise. If you get, a, if you get all compassion um, and no conviction, you don't have Christianity. And if you get all conviction, no compassion, you don't have Christianity. It's both of those things together in the person of Jesus. I'm trying to walk those lines, hold that tension. Hmm. Man, that's, that's so helpful to hear. And I know that you're walking that out and, and thank you for setting an example for, for others as well in that area. <clears throat> One last question before we get to the quick hitters here. And what was your biggest misconception as a young leader? You know, I, I know we kind of talked about you reading about leadership, somebody yeah. calling it out in you. Well, then you step into it and you, you have an idea of what leadership is going to be. But when you're, when you're there, it's different. What was your biggest misconception? People will do what you say because you're the leader. Hmm. I got the position. Now I got followers. Turns out it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> Why so would anybody do what I say? I'm in charge here. It's like, you're not in charge. You got the title, but you're not in charge. So how do you, how did you learn to overcome that? Yes. Love John you. Maxwell. Love John <laughs> Maxwell. Hey, I need help right now. <laughs> no, man, like John Maxwell had this little teaching on the five levels of leadership. They all started with P like it's position and personhood and blah, blah, blah. I just like literally, man, I, I'm not a smart guy. My, my, my killer app is ruthless execution on other people's ideas. So like I'm a fundamentally a doer. And uh, so I was just like, okay, man, I'm just going to break this thing down and start doing it. So I would just like look through, like he would have like action points and I would just go do them. And then over the course of time, I sort of internalized those things and it sort of like came out of my heart. And uh, it was like, I wasn't trying. I was, it was effortless, but that's how it was, man. I, like I basically read about it a lot more, invested in people, try to zoom it out. It's not working. Why is this not working? Let me figure out why it's not working. Let me implement the changes. So that's, that's basically how I did it. And uh, I, I realized that powering up if on, on a continuum, it's like, if title doesn't work, powering up is really not going to work. So how do I try something else and let me go fill those gaps in? And that, that was basically it. Read a lot of books on people skills, a lot of stuff on persuasion, a lot of stuff on influence, uh, a lot of stuff on, you know, yeah, all those sort of like the human interpersonal dynamics of leadership. So people help how they would buy into something. I tell you a book that rocked me on this stuff very, very early on, um, The Leadership Challenge by Puzas and Costner. Mm. That book right there, I feel like for like young leaders may have skipped that book. Ten exemplary practices of leadership. Let me tell you, every week I wrote out those five practices and put tangible steps in place to make that happen. So one of the things that one of their ideas is inspire a shared vision. It's a very simple idea. It's like people view a group photo to be good. 
when the person in the group photo looks good. So if, if your neighbor looks amazing, but your eyes are closed, you're gonna be like, gotta retake that group shot. Your eyes look, if you look amazing and their hair's in their face, you're like, no, nah, I think this one's pretty good. <laughs> this is like, you know, put the people in the picture and frame it well, man. Frame a narrative and put people's faces. All those very simple things. I got really good at that because of every week I took action on it. And over the course of time, it sort of became intuitive. So rather than like saying, I'm the great leader, here's my vision, I'd sort of say, from what I understand about you, here's the cry of your heart. I want you to know there's a place in this thing God's doing. You know, so I started a lot of things like that, but that was a, a book that really accelerated my leadership. Love it. Well, let's move to the quick hitter questions here. And these are just short one minute answers. And we'll get started with this one. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office, all that good stuff? Up at four, bed at 10. That's my dream. Two hours in the morning with God, like uh, meditation, prayer, enjoying God, not, not like contending, drinking lattes, read, you know, like reading the Psalms, like taking it in slowly, a uh, little bit of exercise in there, discipling my daughter um, in, in the office at seven, um, out of the office at three. That's, that's like my dream day. And then hanging out with my wife, mm. you know, reading at night, serving that sort of stuff. That early, man. I'm at that point. I'm 44. I'm like, my wife and I look at each other like, it's 8.30. Are we allowed to go to bed yet? Like, are, we, are we allowed to? Who do we have to ask? That was, that's really the motivation of beautiful resistance is you're in New York City going to bed at like 10 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what's, uh, what's your favorite personality test? I like the Enneagram. I, I, I like it for its simplicity and I like it because of its like uh, fear and motivation dynamic. Um, it's a little overdone, but I, I, I like that. It's scalable and you get it quickly. What's your, what's your Enneagram number? You know, I am a four and a three identically. It's like you can't. So I'm either really driven to be special or I'm really special. That's why I'm so driven. But <laughs> somewhere in there. When you said you were a doer, I was like, I bet he's a three. Yeah. What is an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? An unusual habit. Um, I, I think I read a lot of poetry. I look at a lot of photography. You got to, like we live in a in a world where we are getting dripped in like a drip. The worst high definition of violence and godlessness that any generation has ever personally witnessed. No generation has personally witnessed this level of sin and brokenness firsthand. And I get to tend to the heart, man. I get to resist that brokenness with beauty. So I'm always reading poetry, looking at photography, just remembering the other side of it so I can lead out of wonder. That's the great thing I'm trying to do. I'm trying to lead out of wonder, out of an enchanted world. And uh, so, yeah, I read a ton of poetry, listen to a lot of jazz, a lot of those things that bring mm. beauty back to life, you know? So with that, then, do you, do you, are you pretty careful? I mean, you're active on social media. Are, are you careful? Do you have intentional rhythms for social media? Oh, bro, I'm a creator, not a consumer of social media. I can tell you that right now. I'm 10 to 1 create versus consume. Oh, look, man. I mean, I'm, I just took off social media for Holy Week, and it was like the best week of my life. Mm. You know, I mean, look, it's, maybe it's because of how I'm wired. If I didn't feel like God had brought me to America with some sense of call, I probably wouldn't be on social media. I'd just have my head down doing the stuff. Mm. But I feel like it is a tool. 
uh, I try and like sort of model healthy social media, which is like it's a combination of like photography, poetry, theology, personal. You know, I'm trying to use it as like a little bit of a ministry tool or something. Mm. So you're yeah, boundaries for sure. Yeah. So you're creating content, posting it, not spending a lot of time scrolling. Uh, so we know. Next question is, what's your favorite app? We know it's not TikTok. So, what's what's your favorite app on your phone? My favorite app on my phone is Visco. Visco, did the photo uh, editing app? Yeah, the photo editing yeah. app. Nice. Hmm. Spent a lot of time is, in there. A lot of. What has been the best book you've read in the past six months? The best book I've read um, in the past six months. It's actually a reread. So I've read this book coming up on four times. Now it's a book by Gordon McDonald called A Resilient Life. Mm. And um, man, I, every time I've read it, I've wept at some point. You know, it's it's awakened something in me. It's I think he's almost in his eighties when he's no, he's in his sixties. I think. Um, oh no, he's older than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I basically, to, to take one step back, when I like an author, I read the canon like I'm being mentored by them. So if I like a Gordon McDonald book, I buy all his books. I read a chapter every morning as part of my devotions and like I'm being mentored by him. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I did that. I've done that with a lot of authors, but that book, A Resilient Life, in the middle of 2020, in the middle of all of the challenges, it was like an old wise man saying, stay the course, man. Stay the course. It will be worth it. That was the book. I love that. Gordon McDonald. I don't know him, but he is a G. Like his he's got he's got a going age. Yeah. yeah. Hey, what one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? Build your leadership on prayer. Hmm. There's so there's sowing and reaping, and then there's favor. And favor is when you reap what you didn't sow. Hmm. And if God trusts you, you will have his favor. Mm. And there's no substitute for the favor of God in your leadership. Mm. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and sharing about your leadership journey. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. If it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review so other young leaders like yourself can find the podcast. And we'll see you next week.